We'll do the best I can. Uh, uh, so Mark 8, we're going to pick up in ver- verse 22, and we'll read down all the way to 9-1, actually. So Mark 8, before we kind of read it, let me just kind of prep us a bit. Um, fun fact about your eyesight. You ready? Hope there's no ophthalmologists in here because you will correct me after this probably if I'm wrong. As you, you know, it's fascinating, your eyes. Look around you right now. Or just look at me. Your eyes are sending um, about 100 billion signals to your brain every second. But that's really only a fraction of the story that's being told. Um, What's happening as you look at what you see when you see something, only 10% of that information is coming from your optic nerve. The vast majority of what's going on is your brain is doing a lot of wonderful work. And what it's doing is, is as that's receiving those signals, it's having to deconstruct them. It's having to uh, interpret uh, faces. It's having to find out what's going on in the movements around it, interpret those. It's having to identify danger. And it's making sense of all of that. It's a really fascinating picture. Actually, if you really want to know something really fascinating, what comes through your optic nerve is about a fraction of of one-fifth of a second behind in terms of your brain processing it. So what the brain does is it does this fascinating thing. It actually projects into the future what it thinks you're actually seeing. Technically speaking, you're never seeing anything in the present. You're seeing it in the future. (laughs) And then your brain is making up for that lapse. Are you fascinated by that? In the words of Bill Bryson, the thing that I've been reading a book on the body, so just I've got to get some of this out. Um, but in the words of Bill Bryson, the thing about it is, is uh, seeing, like, what you see, visual images, actually, um, that's only really such a small portion of what's going on. What's really happening is, is how you're making sense of the images. And the reason why I give you that illustration is because when you read and you look at Jesus, it's very much similar to that. When you look at the Gospels, it's so, it's so similar um, when you read the Gospels, you, it, it takes time. It takes persistence. It takes prayer. It takes revisions. Um, and it takes the help of God to actually get a picture of Jesus, a clear picture of Jesus. As you read the section we're getting ready to read, it might be, there's going to be a portion of it that's really familiar to you if you're churched at all. If you're not, that's okay. But at a glance, you might see a series of disjointed, like, vignettes in the whole section. But if you actually look carefully, I think you might see a masterful literary technique. It's really quite masterful what's happening in it. And um, what it does is it essentially does this. It begins with a scene with a blind man, but he's not healed immediately. That's what you're going to see. And then after that, you're going to have this discussion with the disciples and Jesus. And what he's going to do is he's going to, essentially, he's going to be asking them, do you see me clearly? And they think that they do. But again, their sight is not immediate. And then at the end, the last scene, the very last phrase that you're going to read is you're going to see Jesus talking about seeing the kingdom of God. All right? And so if you're seeing it clearly, the whole thing, there's a clear theme emerging, and that is sight. What do you see? Do you see Jesus clearly? And what I would, that's really the question I want you asking as you read 
the passage is, do you see Jesus clearly? Because I think that's what Mark is wanting you to ask. Do you see Jesus clearly? And do you see that clarity comes by degrees? Do you, do you see that clarity, clear sight comes by stages? It takes time. You got it? You with me? All right, so we'll, we'll pick up here in verse 22, and we'll read down, and we'll, we'll pause at 33. Here's what it says. This is Jesus and the disciples. They, 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 came, they came to Bethsaida, and some people brought to him a blind man and begged him to touch him. And he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. And when he had spit on his eyes, how do you, that's great. You guys want spit on by Jesus? And he spit on him. <laughs> he spit on his eyes and laid his hands on him and asked him, do you see anything? And he looked up. And he said, I mean, I, I see people, but they look like trees walking. And then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again. And he opened his eyes and his sight was restored. And he saw everything clearly. And he sent him to his home saying, do not even enter the village. And then Jesus went on with the disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, who do the people say that I am? And they told him, well, John the Baptist and others say Elijah and others, one of the prophets. And he asked them, well, but who do you say I am? And Peter answered him, well, you're the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. And he began to teach them that um, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. And after three days, rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. All right. Pause there. Let's think about this. So it kind of already kind of showed you in a nutshell, but like, let's just go over it. Let's unpack it a little bit. Um, so first you have Jesus encountering this blind man, and Jesus spits and lays his hands on his face and his eyes, and he says, do you see anything? And wh what happens? It says in verse 24, well, I see people, but they look like trees walking. So what is happening? If you're seeing this at all, you have to be thinking to yourself, is Jesus slipping? Right? Like, what's going, he can't heal him first time around? You know, I mean, is Jesus like one, like, wait, what, what? I didn't do it right? It's, it's weird, right? Like, so you have to, if you see that as strange, you, you, you would be correct in reading it. Anytime you read the Gospels and you notice something strange, good, stop. Ask yourself why you find it strange. So Jesus says, him a second time, verse 25, he says, his sight was restored, and quote, and he saw everything clearly. And then you have Jesus takes them up to this place called Caesarea Philippi. Well, okay, so that's kind of a pagan territory, non-Jewish territory. And really what it is is it, it was a, it's a place where uh, Herod the Great built amazing stuff there. And he named Caesarea Philippi after essentially two kings, one in place being Caesar Augustus and the other being his son, his soon-to-be puppet king, Philip. And so the place bears two kingly names. And so what Jesus does, he uses it essentially as a backdrop for an illustration. That's how brilliant Jesus is. Everything is meaningful for Jesus. 
So he goes up there to a place that represents like the kings, really, of the world, in, 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 in essence, earthly kings, power and authority, lordship, really is the backdrop for Jesus here as, as this discussion begins. And what he does is he begins cultivating their sight of his identity and his kingship. Verse 27, who do you say I am? In other words, it, it would be as if Jesus looked at them and said, when you look at me, what do you see? What do you see? Right? Or who do people say? What do they see? And they answer, essentially, in a word, prophet. Right? A big, you're a, people look at you, and they see you as an amazing teacher. Okay? And then he turns to them, he gets personal. But who do you say I am? Verse 29. Who do you say? What is it that you see? You're telling me what everybody else sees. Now, what do you actually see? He's bringing out things. He's cultivating things in them. And Peter being Peter, he's the, you know, he's the, he's the blossoming leader of a group. And so what all blossoming leaders of a group that really are achievement-oriented do is they throw up their hands before everybody else, right? And so Peter throws up his hands when the question is posed. Ooh, ooh, I know, Peter says. I know. You're the Christ, right? Meaning, essentially, like, the literal translation of that is you're the anointed one. For the Jew, that means you're the king. You're the promised king. It's a big deal. But curiously and strangely, in the very next line, Jesus strictly charged them to tell no one. Right? Peter's right, sort of. But he says, don't tell anybody about this. Well, that's strange, right? It, it, why would Jesus not want the disciples to go around and talk about him being king he, if he really truly is the king? That's strange. If you read it and you think that's strange, that's because it is strange. But like I said, clear eyesight of Jesus, clearly seeing Jesus, comes by degrees. It comes in stages. It takes time. Your first draft of Jesus will likely need some revisions. Just like my first pass at my sermon is never good. You should see my first drafts. You're like, the final one's bad. You should see the first draft. The first draft of Jesus never really, it just, it needs revisions. And their first draft needed a lot of red ink. A lot of red ink. These disciples, along with every other Jew, and their day, of course, grew up hearing various stories of a coming Messiah, promised king, the anointed one, the Christ, as Peter's calling him, rightly so. But they had these visions. They had heard these stories from their parents, probably, or the local synagogue or whatever it was. They grew up hearing these stories of a, of a Messiah, promised one, who would be a king, but he would do a violent takeover. He'd be more like a military leader. In their day, king... More importantly, a new king meant that. That's what it meant. I mean, think about it. No harsh ruler like Rome is just going to peacefully resign power. They're not going to just be like, well, we hear you're a big deal. We hear you got some really great ideas. Go ahead and take power. But this isn't going to happen. And so for these Jews and for Peter and the other guys, they have a vision in their head. They have, they're, they're deploying expectancy bias every time they listen to Jesus, which is something you're doing in your marriage. <laughs> you... You, you think you know somebody, and you have stories in your head. And so you, 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 sometimes when you're listening, you're not really listening. You're hearing what you think the person is saying. Anyone? 
Anyone? Elbows? So they're, they're friends, roommates. This is, and this is, by the way, what you do when you read your Bible. What's what I do, right? Like when I read my Bible, I clearly Jesus is a white American. You know what I mean? Like it's, but that's not true. So that's what Peter's doing. What Peter's doing is what all of us do. He's, he's just operating out of his assumptions. It's like, well, no, that, here, that's what's happening here. So anyway, that's what happens. He, and so Jesus is like, but you're not ready. They're, they're, they, I'm not the kind of king that you think. And so they rightly see the king, but they got the wrong idea. And Jesus wasn't going to be a military, violent military leader. He's not even going to be a politician. He's not going to have great speeches. I mean, he's going to have great parables, but no one understands them. And he's not going to have a savvy administration. I mean, the disciples are the administration. And look at them. They're not savvy. So uh, this isn't going like you would normally think. And so the call to silence to them isn't a permanent one. It's just that their preconceived categories for Christ had to be reworked, which is true for me and it's true for you. And so what happens is Jesus begins teaching them who he is. That's what he does. He's like, stop, don't, shh, don't talk about me. You're not ready. Let me explain something. So he, he begins to explain what he's like, his way of being king. And that's verse 31 through 32. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this, I love how Mark says, plainly, very plainly. You know, up until now, if you've been following wrong in the Gospels, Jesus has a habit of talking cryptically a lot. He has a habit of using parables and riddles. And what Mark wants you to hear here is that he is not talking in riddles. He is saying it very straight. There's no slant. And so he wants to be really clear. And I like to picture Jesus having this conversation with them, looking straight in their eyes, probably with a deep sigh, and saying, listen, this will sound very strange. I know how excited you are for this movement we're building. I know you love me. I know you want to be loyal. I know you want to follow me anywhere. But I need to be abundantly, totally clear with you what this involves. I need to be very clear. My kingship isn't military-backed. It, it doesn't involve thrones. It, it doesn't involve sophisticated meetings. It doesn't involve fancy banquets. My kingship means suffering, uh, rejection, and loss of life. That's what it means. It's completely opposite of what you think. However, he does include at the end, however, this loss, this total loss will involve a resurrection. It will have a renewal. And what happens next is Peter, again, I kind of touched on this. Peter serves, I think, as an outward projection of everybody's inner worlds. Like he serves as a great little illustration, which he commonly does, for what I do all the time when I'm reading the Bible or when I'm thinking about Jesus. He, what he does is he, care, he shows that he deeply cares for Jesus but he likes to control Jesus. He, he shows that um, he, he loves Jesus deeply, he believes in him, but he can't help himself in forcing Jesus into his own agenda, which is what I do. It's what we all do. 
and he's showing us that. And so he takes Jesus aside so as not to embarrass Jesus, which is hilarious. Let's have a conversation. Let's have a time out, you and me. So he takes him over to the side, and it actually says that he begins to rebuke Jesus. He begins to scold him. I like to think of Peter in the scene as like one part sports psychologist and one part helicopter parent, right? He's buffing out all the rough edges. You will not suffer. You're too special. And you're tired and you're not thinking straight and you need to get your game face on. You're a winner, you're not a loser, right? That's the conversation. (laughs) So... Jesus then turns to the group and he rebukes Peter in front of everyone saying, this is verse 33, get behind me, Satan. For you're not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. It's interesting, the NLT, if any of you use that translation, this is the ESV, but in the NLT, it actually translates that line, "You're, you're seeing with man's eyes. You're not seeing with God's. So in other words, he's saying to him, he's saying, Peter, hush, listen. <laughs> You're, you have the wrong eyesight on me, and you have the wrong eyesight on the kingdom. And we call him Satan. I mean, that's, get behind me, Satan. That's not the thing you really want to hear from Jesus, right? Like, in my daily devotionals, that's not usually what I hear Jesus saying to me, um, it seems harsh, and it is harsh. There's no way around that. It Sure, it crushed Peter to hear it. But that should tell us something about how serious Jesus takes his call to suffer. That's how serious it is. And Peter's just doing exactly what Satan did, technically speaking, which I think is why Jesus very carefully uses that language. And so if you go right back to the very beginning of the gospel story that we've been reading, when Jesus goes out into the wilderness to be tested, Um, he encounters Satan there, and he has conversations, and he's tempted. And what is Satan trying to do, in essence? He's trying to get him to forget who he is, what his identity is about, and he tries to get him to skirt around suffering. And so when Jesus is looking at Peter, he's essentially saying, you're doing everything that Satan wants to do. Get me to not suffer. However, it's too important. And so Peter gets talked to just the way Satan was spoken to. And now notice something in verse 31. Jesus says, he must. Jesus says, I must suffer. And this is how Jesus saw it. That's how he framed it. And so that's really important, actually. In some ways, like, you could just build this whole section around this idea of must. He must. Seems to be like Jesus is framing this like it's not optional. Jesus either suffers pain, loss, humiliation, and ultimately life itself, or he doesn't bring healing and justice. That's the narrative of the Bible. That's the way Jesus wants you to understand it. Without suffering, without rejection, without loss, it doesn't get fixed. You don't get fixed. I don't get fixed. The world does not get fixed. If he doesn't suffer innocently, then he's, in essence, he's, he's not a substitute that we need for all of our failure. He, if he's not an innocent sufferer, then he can't actually absorb into himself all the hate and all the selfishness of the world. You see that? Like if he, 
if he establishes his new kingdom, this, this, this whole like kingdom of God thing, and he built out this new humanity of a bunch of new people, these Christians, if he does all of this, and he does it by might and by power, if he does it by winning, then, it's, then in essence what he does is he resembles every other kind of authority and power that's come before or since. It won't be a king. In other words, it won't be a kingdom of forgiveness. That's what the kingdom of God is. I mean, I'm fully convinced that those outside of the kingdom of God that will be outside of the kingdom of God. It's more than just the fact that they don't believe in Jesus. It's that they hate God's mercy. You don't want him. You don't believe him to be as forgiving as he actually is. And see, so if he doesn't do it this way, if he's not an innocent sufferer, it won't be a kingdom of forgiveness and renewal. It'll be a kingdom of revenge. It'll just be like, well, bad things have happened and God wants to get back at them. So then he goes from teaching, though, here's how, my, here's how I want you to understand me, see me as a king. I'm a king that suffers. I'm a king that empties myself out. I'm gonna lose everything for you. And then he goes from teaching to invitation. And so we'll pick up there in verse 34 and see what he says. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with his holy angels. And he said to them, truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after has come with its power. Now, if you caught what he's doing, he's not just talking about his way of kingship, but he's talking about your discipleship now. He went from, do you see me as the right kind of king, and do you see yourself as a disciple and what that means? First off, just notice this. The invitation for discipleship, to be a follower of Jesus, to be someone who is with him, loyal to him, all of that, Notice it's for anyone. Verse 34, if anyone would come after me. Man, this is a wide open door. The invitation is wide open, not reserved for religious types. It's not reserved for personality profiles, not an INFJs or whatever it is. Whatever, person or, whatever profile you think, not for a certain resume, not with a squeaky clean background, nothing. Anyone can come and be a follower of Jesus. Second, it's clear that discipleship is an avoidance of Jesus' path. It's basically the same one, which is something that the Christian church continually refuses to recognize. It's, it's the same one, verse 34 through 36. I'll just read it again because it's so important. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross, pick up his death instrument, his own particular death instrument, would follow me. For whoever would save his life, and you're going to have to lose it, whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel's sake, the good news, will save it. And for what, what does it profit a man to gain the whole world 
but throw away his soul. So every time our translators put the word life or soul there, um, it's the same word. Jesus is using the same word three different times. It's the word um, psyche. It's, it's, it's where we get our word psychology. Um, and so what he's saying is, is he's, he's not just, it's not just your thinking, it's your personhood. That's really what he's getting at. Your, your core self, your core identity, essentially. And I could talk a long time um, about what all this means, but I'll just be brief. What is he saying exactly when he talks about denial and losing life and all of this? Um, he's saying, Jesus is looking at them, and he's saying, if anybody wants to follow me, they can. Anybody. But here's the thing, though. I dare you. I like to think of it like a dare. Jesus says, I dare you to risk, risk basing your entire life, your entire identity, your entire schedule, your entire financial portfolio, your entire self-image, everything about you and what makes you you. I dare you to, to base all of that stuff around me and my suffering, my suffering loss for people, my sacrifice for people, to, to bring healing, to bring joy, to bring peace, to bring justice. I dare you to do it. Because if you do, you'll actually find yourself. And you can choose not to, which would make sense. The vast majority of the world, Jesus is saying. But I promise you, if you do that, you will lose in the end. That's the dare. <laughs> That's essentially what he's saying. He's claiming a paradox, right? Jesus is essentially saying, what I want to tell you is that I see life as a total paradox. The question is whether or not you believe in me. Jesus is saying, I, I, your core instincts, your natural inclinations for human flourishing, what you just naturally believe, you started believing it when you were a little person, growing up, and then it just became more and more real to you in your head. But your natural core instincts for flourishing cannot be trusted, Jesus is saying. You, you do not understand it. You have to be humble enough to say, maybe I've got life completely upside down. Maybe up is down, and down is up. What if, Jesus is saying, that's true. What if the whole world around you is living this massive illusion that to achieve and achieve and achieve will not bring you the joy and the flourishing that you want? What if he's right? What if the whole world is throwing away their personhood? What if that's true? I mean, in some ways, what Jesus is saying is terrifying and really inspiring. Because in one sense, it sounds horribly difficult, <laughs> but in another sense, it sounds like, but he's saying, you have the agency, not to save yourself, but you have the agency to access salvation in eternity. You have that. You, it's yours. It's just whether or not you want it. It's whether or not you could believe that it's all a paradox. If you let your own preferred manufactured identity, and we all have one. I mean, you know what I mean? Like we all build out this 
this illusion, this false self, this, this whole thing that we want so desperately to have because we think that will bring us what we really want, that that will bring the joy, the happiness, all of it. And, he, and Jesus is saying, if you can let yourself die to that image, whatever that is, a thousand deaths, <laughs> you paradoxically will actually get a life. That's why I should have titled this sermon, Get a Life, you know? Get a life. But if you'd rather shape your life around your own personal agenda, if you want to shape your life around your own comforts, if you want to shape your life around your own self-image, I mean, in whatever that is, you know, there's a million ways we do it. In the end, friend, you're going to lose yourself. You're not just going to lose your, your eternity with God. I think even in the, even there's potential. It's not for everybody. But even in this life, you're just really going to be, um, you're going to be incredibly boring. That's what I think. I just think it's really boring. I know the world likes to praise it, but how's the world doing? And I just think what Jesus is offering is so much more meaningful. There's real substance in what he's talking about. And so he's saying, it's, look, it's your choice. But he ends the invitation with a rhetorical question, doesn't he? What good is it to gain everything that the world typically throws your way? I mean, let's say, you know, Jesus is like, well, let's say you do really well at this. Like, <laughs> you knock it out of the park, man. You have a wonderful career. You have great, you know, friends, and you live in a great neighborhood or a great apartment, or you have this killer city life or whatever it is that your thing is, and you, you build out this massive reputation. You have a ridiculous amount of followers on your feed. It, it, it just is up and to the right for you. You get the family you want or the single life that you want. I mean, it all works out. Jesus is like, look, here's the reality. Let's it, try to imagine. Let's whiteboard out everything that you could possibly imagine that you wanted in this earthly life. What if, you know, you get all of that, but if what I'm saying is true and you absolutely throw away your soul, Jesus is saying, is that worth it to you? Is it worth it to you? I mean, it's what he's doing. He's, he's so powerful in the way he does it. It's a question of meaning and, and valuation. That's what he's doing. He, 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 Jesus is asking, what, what actually is valuable to you, you know? Think about what you protect. Think about what I protect. I've been thinking about this all week. It's like, what, what, do, you, what do we nurture? Like, really nurture. What do we strive so hard to cultivate? And if you think you know the answer, whatever your first answer is probably isn't the right one, and you probably need to sit with it a little bit, and then you need to probably ask yourself something more like, what, what are the things that I don't want anyone to know about and I'm really embarrassed if people know? Like, like well, there's a million things church people talk about except their finances. You ever notice that? People will talk in the church about their sex life before they'll talk about their financial life. It's weird. But it reveals golden calves. And it reveals, like, the things that we, like, secretly protect and nurture. We don't want to talk about those things. And so what do you protect? What do you nurture? What do you, what do you strive so hard to cultivate? Money, status, comfort, intimacy with another person. And not all of those things 
a lot of those things, maybe even all of those things for you, are not bad, you know? Like, a lot of you are nurturing kids. Good. Why did you do your job? You know, nurture your kids. A lot of you are nurturing your career, and that, that good. We, like, careers are a good thing. However, and this is what I think what Jesus is getting at. Usually, if you have a pulse, you wake up most mornings, if you're like me, and you're thinking about the condition of these things, these things. So you're waking up in the morning, and the script starts playing, and it's just rolling. And, and, and underneath all of that, what's happening, I think, in our heads is something like, where's my comfort going to come in today? Will I be successful? Will I produce enough? Will I achieve? Am I going to have any conflicts today? <sighs> the meetings, whatever it is, the kids, you know. As opposed to us waking up in the morning and taking a moment, whenever that is, whether it's, you know, before the coffee or after the coffee or after whatever it is, taking a moment and saying, what matters to me today? Like, really matters? What, what, what's the condition of my soul? What's, where's my heart right now? Like, I know I got a bunch of stuff I got to do. But, like, what matters? The real part of me the part of me that lives on forever, the only lasting part of myself, where is it and how is it doing right now? Because who cares about the meeting at the end of the day? Who cares, right, about the conflicts at the end of the day? Jesus is saying here, um, clear up not only your sight of me, Jesus, but he's also saying clear up your sight on yourself, do you actually look in the mirror and ask yourself the hard questions? What are you living for? Get clear, not only about Jesus, but get clear about you. I think that's what he's doing. Because I think Jesus is saying, friends, if you're human, you get foggy vision. You're walking around like me. We all do it. And we're like, well, I see, but people are trees. You know what I mean? Like, I see, but, like, there's all this other thing. I think I see, and Jesus is like, you don't really see. You need help. You need help. And so Jesus isn't just healing the, the, the sight of all of these people of him. He's healing the sight of themselves, for themselves, and how they see their own value systems, their own identity. And none of this, by the way, is easy. I, I hope you know. I, I, I'm trying to speak in such a way where this stuff is really hard. I mean, it kind of feels like death. <laughs> it kind of feels like cross-bearing. And it's actually really humbling and terrifying, and it makes us look like fools as we kind of give ourselves to this, which is why he says in verse 38, whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation of him Will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels? I mean, that is a harsh. I mean, Jesus is saying, look, I get it. What I'm saying is really, really difficult. A lot of you will just not like it and ignore it and hate it. But I'm telling you, if you are embarrassed, Jesus is saying, if you're embarrassed of what I'm saying, I will be embarrassed of you when I return. I mean, trust me, I checked the translation like 20 times. That's what he's saying. 
to truly flip your value system, to become countercultural. That's what real discipleship is. Real discipleship is dangerous or it is not real discipleship. It's a counterfeit. And, you know, I would like to be Mr. Jokester about it, but Jesus is not making jokes. He loves you too much. So to truly flip your systems, your value, your valuations of life, to let go of, you know, self-determination and let your identity be shaped, completely reshaped around Christ, his cross, and his kingdom, well, that's going to go against all of your natural inclinations. It's going to be really painful at times. Yeah, welcome to the club of discipleship. And my guess is, though, I think, I've been thinking about this, my guess is that the vast majority of you, if not all of you, are not embarrassed of what Jesus is saying. You're embarrassed of yourselves. Like, you're thinking about yourselves and your own struggle with it, and, and I get that. I feel the same way. And so here's what I'd say, just a couple takeaway lessons for us. One, pray for illumination. Like, pray, in other words, what I'm saying is, that's the church word for it, pray for clear sight. Don't assume that you naturally will have it. Pray for clear sight. Like, we need God's patience. We also need God's power for clarity. Jesus is a suffering Savior, or he's not the Savior that we need. That's reality. And this is something you've got to be convinced that we are prone to ignore or avoid. I, th I think, man, if I could get one thing to, for you to just be like, all right, I will believe in that. Believe this, friend. If you call yourself a Christian, you will be prone to forget ignore, avoid the fact that Jesus is a suffering Savior who's asked you to follow him into suffering. And it's really, really difficult, and, and, and it's actually really uncomfortable when you realize it. And, and the point I'm making here is this, that right following comes from right seeing. That, that's the whole movement of the passage. All the blind man is, I mean, I think he was really being kind to him, but I think the blind man is just an illustration for what he's actually trying to say to his disciples. If you ain't going to see right, you know, you ain't going to follow right. And so his way must become our way. And I, I don't see him, if I don't see him, put it this way, if I don't see him giving up everything to love me and to heal me, then I when I am faced with potential suffering and loss and giving up something, it's going to feel futile and not worth it. You know, it's just going to feel that way. But if I see him giving up everything to love me, then when I'm faced with hard decisions, I can do it. Because that's worthwhile. It's purposeful. And I got to say, man, I, I, a lot of people in the church settle for proclamation over discipleship. They do. I mean, we just do. It acts as a counterfeit. Like we think because we have some of the right information, we're actually following. But we're not. We're not actually following. We're just talking. A lot of the, the dead Christianity of the West is a result of that. And there are a lot of good church people whose actual life uh, it's like Hans Christian Andersen's emperor, sans clothing. People are just walking around them, not willing to say, 
you're actually, your life doesn't look any different at all. And so everybody's just in on the charade because we do a really good job of being safe and curating a life of actual zero accountability, like real accountability, because that's dangerous because we might actually have somebody that would say, hey, you're naked. The clothing actually, there's no robe on you. So, you know, that this is what takes place in the church. And, and for some of us, we say, enough of that. Because where there's no real accountability, no real prayer of self-examination, then our self-interests will guide our career choices, our spending choices. It will guide our sexual lives. It will guide our time. And it will guide the way we serve. But, but if we open our Bibles, every time we open our Bibles, and we say, God, please open up my eyes so that I can see you, not the, not the Jesus that I really just want to see or the, the Jesus that my daddy or my mommy taught me, you, as you present yourself. And every time we get stuck, we pray that, and we just pray, like, God, give me sight. Help me see you. Well, the thing is, is you will get grace upon grace, and that means you will get comforts that you didn't see coming, but you will also get challenges, just hard challenges. And that means all of these things are on the table. The last lesson I would say is this. Not only pray for illumination, but I would say this. Pray for forgiveness and forgive other people. Please forgive other people. Real discipleship means embracing revisions. It, 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 first of Jesus and second of yourself and what you're living for. I guess what I'm saying is this, if Peter can get off track, P Peter, the rock, you know, Matthew 16 tells the story very, not totally differently, but he adds a lot more details. And it's in the scene when Peter calls Jesus the Christ, you know, Jesus prays, like gives him high praise. And he's like, oh, you're the rock. I'm going to build everything around you, you know. And what's fascinating about that is how right Peter is in one second and how within just a short amount of time, Peter gets it really wrong. And that is true not only of Peter, that is true of the church and the church's leadership since its birth. You can get it really right and then really wrong in the same day. We have to learn to embrace revision and repentance. That's the sign that you actually are getting clear eyesight. You know what I find fascinating? is it's widely held that Mark's gospel was really <laughs> written by Peter, that Peter is telling Mark what to write. Now, think about this. If that's true, which I think it is, when Matthew tells this story, he gives high praise to Peter. Did you notice what's not in there? High praise of Peter. And so I picture Mark pinning this story, and as he's writing this story, he's like, dude, you look like an idiot. And Peter's like, leave it in there. And do not correct it. And oh, by the way, leave out, omit the praise. Because I want these people to understand that real disciples screw up. They get it wrong. But Jesus will re rehabilitate Peter. He sticks with him. And so learn to expect moments of error. Embrace that repentance is a part of getting clear eyesight. And always offer forgiveness to people when they screw up. This is the sign. Uh, where there is humility in you, that means, that, you know, you are getting clear eyesight. You're never going to critique someone 
or forgive with the love that God calls us to until you first see and feel your own good humiliations. That's the reality. And so as you learn to see and sense your own humiliations, your own wrongdoings, your own, like, how oh, man, I was really not, I didn't see it clearly. Then you soften up towards other people. And you, I mean, some of the, some of the hardest hearted people in the church are the people that are not able to see the fact that they have foggy vision. And so learn to ask for forgiveness for your own failings, but also forgive others, all right? And so as you come to the table this morning, this bread um, that we take part in, this cup, this bread Jesus took and he broke it when he was with his disciples and he said, this, this is my body broken for you. And he took the cup of wine and he said, this is the cup of the new covenant, the new promise in, in my blood. And Paul reminds us in 1 Corinthians 11 when he talks about taking part in the Lord's Supper communion, he says, don't take part in it in an unworthy manner. In other words, examine yourself. Do you have wrongs in yourself that need to be confessed? Do you have wrongs? Do you have conflict with other people that you need to sort out? Like, think about these things. Pray for clear sight on these things. These things are the true testament of the condition of your heart. When we take this meal and we just take it blindly like we just don't we think we don't think at all about the conditions of our soul that in essence is what it means to take it in an unworthy manner a worthy manner isn't a sinless life a worthy manner is someone who's actually practicing self-examination with authenticity and so that would be my ask of you if, if you've got that going on jesus is Lord to you, and you're trying to figure out what it means to put him at the center of everything, you're invited to come forward to this station or to this station. There's a gluten-free station over here on this side and take part in it. And so take the time that you need and then, and then um, um, come up when you're ready. Let us pray.